Take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ezra, chapter 3. If you were here in Sunday school this morning, we uh, looked at Ezra chapter 1 and chapter 2. And uh, so this is not necessarily a continuation of that. But I, could, I guess I have a question. Anybody here ever been disappointed? What a rhetorical question, right? At one time in our lives, we've all been disappointed. And uh, let me give you the good news. If you haven't, wait long enough and it will, okay? Sooner or later, we will be disappointed. So tonight we're going to deal with that topic, at least begin to, how to overcome defeating disappointment. Ezra chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 12 and 13 as our text tonight. Ezra chapter 3, verses 12 and 13. But many of the priests and Levites and chief of the fathers who were, and I love this, ancient men. Hold on. (laughs) That had seen the first house when the foundation of this house was laid before their eyes, wept with a loud voice, And many shouted for joy. So we have two groups of people here. The ancient ones and the younger ones. I prefer older. That's bad enough. Boy, when they call you ancient, you know you're in trouble, right? (laughs) The year was 537 B.C., The events that are taking place in Ezra 3 are in Jerusalem. And the Jews, at least some of them, have come back from a long period of captivity in Babylon. And if you're here this morning in Sunday school, we reminded ourselves that the deportation took place in stages, not all at once. And the same is true about going back to the homeland. But some of those folks, by this time, had been in captivity for 70 years. Some for at least 50 years. And because of their disobedience, because of being stiff-necked, and not listening to the pleas that God put out through His prophets, God allowed them to experience judgment. He had warned them even back in Leviticus that would happen if they disobeyed him. And here in Ezra, in 537, the first wave of Israelites are coming back home. But we have to understand, again, some have gone for 70 years, some at least 50. But everything's changed. The lush land they left has now fallen into the hands of their enemies. That wonderful, beautiful city of Jerusalem is falling into ruins. The walls have been torn down. Many buildings have been burned to the ground. And others looted. But the saddest thing of all was a temple that Solomon built 500 years earlier is gone. It is gone. 
Now, I hope you know there was a time <clears throat> the Jews thought that could never happen. It was such a glorious temple. The hand of God was involved in building it. But now it has been utterly destroyed. The devastation of the temple was so complete for those who had seen it years earlier. It was just a dream. All of its glory had been some kind of a strange dream. When Nebuchadnezzar came in, when his army came in, they they took the gold and the silver from the temple, anything of value. And again, the temple itself was demolished. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. The altar of sacrifice is gone. The implements of temple worship are gone. And as these Jews are looking at their homeland, they're in Jerusalem. What they see, for the most part, is a pile of rubble. We'll be in Nehemiah next Sunday morning at Sunday school. And while Ezra led the rebuilding of the temple, Nehemiah would lead the rebuilding of the walls. One day, Nehemiah would receive a report from a group of men who had returned from Judah. And among those group of, that group of men was his own brother, Hanani. And Nehemiah asked them, what you see? And their answer wasn't good. They told Nehemiah that the remnant of Jews there in the province, they're in trouble. They are in great affliction. They are suffering great reproach. And they told Nehemiah about all the things they saw. They said, we want you to know even the wall around Jerusalem has been torn down, broken down. And the gates have been burned with fire. But that's Nehemiah's job when we're talking about Ezra tonight. So these first returning exiles, they see that work needs to be done. And by the way, we're not going to study the entire book of Nehemiah, but Nehemiah reminds us the work got done because the people had a mind to work. And the same was true with this first wave coming back home. And they began, they made a resolve and they worked with determination. They were going to rebuild the house of God. It's kind of interesting in the first six verses of chapter 3 of Ezra, they rebuild the altar. The second thing they do in verses 7 through 9 they lay the foundation 
of the temple. And the third thing they do, once the foundation is laid, they pause for a time of praise and celebration. It was a glorious day for some. In verse 10, Ezra 3, verse 10 and 11, it says, When the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, they set the priests in their garments with trumpets, the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals, to praise the Lord. They sang together. They gave thanks unto the Lord because he was good. All the time. And they thanked him for his mercy that endures forever. And the Bible says in verse 11, the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation was laid. A milestone in the rebuilding. So in verses 10 through 11, we see a time of cheering, a time of celebration, a time of singing. But not everyone's happy. Look again in our text, verse 12 and 13. But many of the priests and Levites, chief of the fathers, who were ancient men, had been, had seen the first house. When the foundation of the house was laid before their eyes, notice what they did. They wept with a loud voice. And the other group shouted for joy, aloud for joy. So the people could not discern the noise of the shout of joy from the noise of the weeping of the people. For the people shouted with a loud shout, and the noise was heard afar off. Can you imagine the scene? The younger folks danced. They cheered. They celebrated. But the older folks wept with bitter tears. And Ezra says that the shout and the weeping, the shout of joy and the weeping, was so mixed and so loud it was difficult to tell them apart. Now, by the way, as I mentioned earlier, this deportation happened in stages. And uh, the temple was not actually destroyed uh, till after about 20 years of the first wave of deportation. So it was 50 years after the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. that the Jews began to go back home. And rebuild it. Now, certainly there were some, probably at this, by this time were at least 65 years old. And they could remember. They could remember the first temple. Now again, the captivity was 70 years, but the temple was destroyed about 20 years into the captivity. But also understand, there were a lot of Jews who had been born in captivity. 
And they had no memory of Solomon's temple. They had never saw it. Sure, they heard stories about it, about the magnificence. And so these younger people, having grown up in a pagan society, when they saw the beginning of the new temple, the foundation come together, they were excited and they cheered for joy. But those who were older, as they remembered the glory of Solomon's temple, to them, there was no comparison. There was no comparison. And the fact of the matter, they were so disappointed, rather than celebrate like the younger people did, they wept. They wept. Why? Now, I think we can understand a little bit about that. Because truly there was no comparison. It's not part of our text now, but you need to understand God promised them that this new temple would finally have even more glory than the first one did. It was still God's building. And how many know it's not the building that makes a difference, it's God that makes a difference. It really is. I think the problem for them and for a lot of us is when our expectations are misplaced. Think about that. Jesse's not here tonight. But he, he, from the time he was old to talk and walk, he wanted a pocket. He wanted a knife. And I said to him one day, I said, Jesse, when you turn 12 years old, I will get you a knife. And I never thought much about it, but I'm thinking about a little pocket knife, about this big. Jesse's thinking of a Bowie knife, about this big. And I'll never forget when I gave him that pen knife, the look of disappointment on his face. The problem was his expectations were wrong. They were misplaced. As I mentioned earlier in our, in our introduction, I don't care who you are. Everyone knows disappointment. We all know it. Sometimes a friend will break their word. Sometimes a marriage will end in divorce. A friend may betray us. You might get laid off from your company you worked with. Several years ago, I was doing a little job in Newtown. And Jeremy came in there one morning about 10 o'clock. I said, uh, why aren't you working today? And he said, Dr. Pepper decided to try an experiment to see how long they get by without me. And he was trying to make a joke of it, but the fact of the matter was, he was disappointed. Sometimes the doctor can't cure us. Sometimes our investments disappear. Our dreams die. And even the best laid plans can go south. 
And the sad thing is, how often do we disappoint ourselves? We live in a world of disappointment. And if you don't, if we don't wrap our minds around that, we are doomed to be more unhappy tomorrow than we are today. We live in a world of disappointment. Someone once said, this is an English author and theologian, he said this, Our real blessings often appear to us in the shape of pain, losses, and disappointments. History tells us that Alexander the Great wept when he realized there were no more worlds to conquer. He wept. He was disappointed. The father of modern international law said this. I have accomplished nothing worthwhile in my life. Misplaced expectation. Our sixth president of our nation, John Quincy Adams, wrote this in his diary. My life has been spent in vain and idle aspirations, misplaced expectations. Robert Louis Stevenson wrote his own epitaph. On his tombstone, here's what it says. Here lies one who meant well, who tried a little. And failed much. Misplaced expectations. The British mining magnate who opened up Africa and established an empire. On his deathbed he asked the question or said, that, said this. So little done. So much to do. If you ever watched any baseball through the years, you know who Joe Torrey was. He was known most best of all for managing the New York Yankees for many years. He didn't always have that kind of success. He played for several teams including the St. Louis Cardinals. He also coached them for a while. He had some good seasons, but toward the end, before they fired him, he had some horrible seasons. But there was a time he was also a a television color commentator for the what was known then as the California Angels. They're now the Los Angeles Angels. And one night during a broadcast, he made this statement. He said there was a little boy that came up to him before the game. And this little boy is speaking to Joe Torrey. And he asked him a question. 
He said, hey, didn't you used to be somebody? Yeah. When Abraham Lincoln lost the race for U.S. Senator to Stephen Douglas, they asked him how it felt. In Abraham Lincoln's way, he said this, I feel like the boy who stubbed his toe. I am too big to cry and too badly hurt to laugh. Yeah. The professor of psychiatry at John Hopkins University Medical School in Baltimore, he has a lot to say about our assumptive world, the things we assume, the things we expect. And he says to us that all of us make certain assumptions about life. They often go unstated. We don't say it out loud. But somehow, deep down inside, we are convinced that if we do certain things, others will treat us in a certain way. And so somehow, we have assumed that we have earned certain things out of life. And if those expectations are not met, we are disappointed. He goes on to say that there's a strong correlation between good mental health and having assumptions, now hear me, that match reality. Think about that. And he also says there is a high correlation between misplaced assumptions and a variety of emotional problems, including depression. Speaking with my dad yesterday, and he was in one of those woe with me attitudes. And I finally got him to admit, he's done better in life than he thought he ever would. And he finally said, you know what, I've had a good life. I said, yes, you have. But you know what the reason was for his disappointment? Misplaced expectations. Things he assumed. And the truth of the matter is this. We are disappointed when things don't go the way we thought they would. Or we assumed they were going to go. And so wrong expectations lead to disappointment. And disappointment is always, if we, let, if we stay there, is going to lead to despair. And that is exactly why the older people in Ezra's day, as they saw that foundation, that's why they were disappointed. They remembered. They remembered how good things used to be. They remembered what the temple, Solomon's temple, looked like. 
But the problem was they were living in the past with all of its glory. And because they were living in the past, they could not deal with the present reality. Folks, our assumptions have to match reality. And if we are ever going to overcome, if we're ever going to be able to deal with disappointment, I think we have a suggestion from this chapter how to do that. The first thing they did, there was a new dedication. Now, by the way, how many know they couldn't bring back Solomon's temple? They couldn't. I mean, think about it all you want. It's gone. It's time for a new dedication. Ezra chapter 3, verse 1. And when the seventh month was come, and the children of Israel were in the cities, the people gathered themselves together as one man to Jerusalem. And the first thing they did was to rebuild the altar. And they rebuilt the altar so they could offer sacrifices to God. A brand new dedication. And it's interesting, verse 1 says to us that all the people, as one man, gathered together in Jerusalem. How many know it's not always easy to get people in one accord? But the fact that Ezra says they all gathered together as one man suggests they all agreed that we've got to begin this building project. We've got to start. There has to be a new dedication and it has to begin with rebuilding the altar. God had determined that there were two men who would head up the construction of the altar. Jeshua was the religious leader. He was a descendant of Aaron. Zerubbabel was a civil leader. He was a descendant of David. But also the other priests, also descendants of Aaron, and other associates, descendants of David, were in charge of getting the work in progress. They built that altar first before they built the foundation. And they built that altar so they could offer sacrifices according to what was written in the law of Moses. And made a mistake about it. They realized an important thing. And I have to believe this, this realization came from the top down. They realized that it was imperative for these returnees to come back to the Mosaic Covenant. We've got to get back with the Lord. Their forefathers had left that covenant. The nation had been driven into captivity. And these former exiles that were back home, we don't want to make that same mistake. 
we're going to rebuild the altar. So those two key leaders knew exactly what to do. Jeshua the high priest, Zerubbabel, the man who brought them back from exile, led the people in reconstructing the altar of God. And as soon as it was finished, they began to offer the morning and evening sacrifices commanded by God in the book of Leviticus. Now, by the way, remember, they came back home and there were enemies in the land. And even though they had a fear of the people in the land, they still built the altar. And they offered burnt offerings on it. And the Bible says starting on the first day of the seventh month. Now remember, Solomon's temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. It had been 50 years. 50 years since there were any sacrifices offered there. In 2 Kings, the Bible says it was the fifth day, the seventh day of the month, on the 19th year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Said that at that time the house of the Lord was burnt, the king's house was burnt, all the house of Jerusalem, and every great man's house was burnt with fire. Fifty long years. So they rebuilt the altar. They began to offer the morning and evening sacrifices. But then they also made offerings for the Feast of Tabernacles. Look at verse 4. They they kept also the Feast of Tabernacles, as it is written, and offered a daily burnt offering by number, according to the custom, as the duty of every day required. So you have the morning and evening offering. Offering for the Feast of Tabernacles. There's other offerings as well. Look at verse 5 and 6. And afterward offered the continual burnt offering, both of the new moons and of all the set feasts of the Lord that were consecrated. And of everyone that willingly offered a free will offering unto the Lord, from the first day of the seventh month began they to offer the burnt offering unto the Lord. But notice this. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. I love it when God inspires human authors to point out something very important. And notice again the last part of verse 6 as the 3. But the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet Late. Think about that. Before they began to build the temple, they first built the altar. So why? And here's an important precept. 
my friend, worship has to come first. And they knew it. Worship has to come first. So out of the rubble of their past disobedience, the first thing they did, we want to make sure that we are right with God. How many know, until we get right with God, nothing else works? So as they were making those sacrifices, in a sense they were saying, Lord, we're doing this, we're building this altar, because we simply want to get right with you. We want to be right. Now remember, this altar, very important in the Old Testament. It was the symbolic center of their religion. It was a place where they brought their lambs and their goats to be offered to the Lord. It was a place where the animal was killed and the blood was poured out. It was a place uh, that they could come and offer those sacrifices to God. Because here's the situation. They realized without that altar, there could never be proper worship of God. It's got to be a dedication. Without that altar, there could be no assurance of divine protection. Without the altar, there was no guarantee of forgiveness. And without that altar, there was no access to God. And without the altar, there was no way, no way to lift the burden of their guilt and their failure. And these returning exiles realized that this altar was their link between God and man. We're going to rebuild the altar. Now, I mentioned this morning that when the Assyrians came in and took the northern tribes into captivity, they kind of dispersed them throughout the world. They intermarried. And they would never again be a nation. Now, some returned, but they were considered half-breeds, the Samaritans. But the Babylonians allowed the Jews of Judah to live in their own colonies, to live separate. And uh, because of that, they kept a lot of their distinctives and their traditions. But all those years, they didn't have an altar to sacrifice to their God. All of those years. No clear access to God. No assurance of forgiveness. <clears throat> the disobedience had taken the altar away and broken that special kind of fellowship with God. So the first thing they did was an act of dedication. They built that altar. Unless I miss my guess, they realized... They needed a fresh start. Do you ever need that? Yeah. And there are times we all need a fresh start with God. How many know whenever we decide to draw near to God, guess what He'll do? He'll draw near to us. 
And sometimes we need that fresh start because of our own sins. Sometimes we need that fresh start because a set of circumstances has defeated us. And sometimes we allow Satan to hoodwink us to make us feel as though a hope is all gone, never to return. And when those things, when those times come in our lives, we need to do what the Jews did. We must return to the altar sacrifice. Now, don't misunderstand what I'm saying tonight. We have a brand new altar to worship at, and that's the cross of Jesus Christ. We have to run to Jesus Christ. And for you and I to return to the altar of sacrifice, it means returning to the place where the blood of Jesus Christ was shed for our sins. And that's why, church, we need to run to the cross. And I realize we often think of the unsaved, they need to cross, but I do too. It's interesting in the book of Revelation, I don't have this in my notes tonight, that Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any, man, <clears throat> if any man hear my voice and open up, I will come in and sup with him and him with me. And a lot of times we use that To try to win the lost. But that verse is written to the church. That verse is written to the church. And every one of us, every child of God, I don't care how long you've been saved, every one of us, we all need the healing that comes from the cross of Jesus Christ. And we need it every day. 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, one of my favorite verses. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I guess I have to, is that true? Yes. Jesus says it is true. Now, by the way, being a child of God doesn't mean we deny sin. But it means we confess it. And the reason we confess it is because everybody, all have sinned, and all fall short of God's glory, and we continue to do so. And my friend, that's why Jesus had to die. And we have to understand. And don't kid yourself. The day you were saved, sin was not completely eradicated from our life. But thank God. Oh, thank you, Lord. 
By his grace, he gave us provision and provides it every day, provision for our sins. Thank you, Lord. So John says, don't tell me you're not sinning. You're lying if you do. Don't deny it. But John says, let me explain it to you in a nutshell. If you will confess your sins, God is faithful and he's just to forgive you. And he will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So understand what God's Word is saying. If we confess, He'll forgive us and He will cleanse us, period. <clears throat> You've heard me say it many times through the years. The word confess means to agree with God. That whether it be an act or a thought, it was wrong, it was sin. It means to acknowledge this to God. We seek forgiveness. And we make a commitment to our very best ability not to do it again. Augustine made an observation. And here's what he said. He said, confession of a sin is a sign that truth, which itself is light, has already begun to illuminate our sin-darkened lives. Yeah. You can live your life refusing to admit sin, but all you do is deceive yourself. And by the way, who can fool God? No one. Yeah. And if we choose to refuse to admit sin... We cheat ourselves of fellowship with God. Confession is absolutely necessary if we are going to maintain continual fellowship with God. Now, by the way, I used to like to listen to Woodrow Crowell and back to the Bible. And I don't know how many times I heard him say through the years, keep short accounts. Amen. Keep short accounts. You see, confession is supposed to free people, to set us free and enjoy fellowship with Christ. If we confess, He'll forgive us and cleanse us. Confession ought to ease our consciousness and lighten our cares. We have a promise. If we confess, here's what God will do. The problem is, a lot of Christians do not understand how this works. They spend their days feeling so guilty because they find themselves 
confessing the same sin over and over and over. And then at the end of the day, they wonder, well, Lord, did I forget something? I want to tell you today, folks, I'm glad for the grace of God. Because there are some Christians who believe that God forgives them when they confess. But they have the wrong idea. Because somehow, through wrong teaching, they have been taught that if you die with any unconfessing at all, you die lost. Hear me well. If that was true, nobody would make it to heaven. Now, I'm not trying to give you a license to sin. That's not what the Bible says. But understand something, folks. It is hard. It is hard. It is difficult to make sure that we have no unconfessed sins. And here's what we need to remember. And hear me well. We mentioned earlier, you know, we have people disappoint us, but most of the time we disappoint ourselves. Isn't that true? A lot of times. But here's what I want you to know. Our God, your God, He wants to forgive you. Isn't that good? He wants to forgive us when we confess. And in order to that, for that end to be accomplished, he allowed his only begotten son to die just so that he could offer us pardon. He wants to forgive us. And here's what the Bible teaches us. And remember, you hear me say it often, it's important what you know. To know what the Bible says. When we came to Christ, no matter who you are, when you're, if you're a believer, Christ forgave all of our sins. What's the word all mean? Everyone. Every sin we have committed and every sin we will commit. And so we don't need to confess our past sins over and over and over again. There's no need to. But the problem is we have trouble forgiving ourselves. And because of that, we don't believe that God can forgive us. Aren't you glad that his thoughts are not our thoughts? His ways are not our ways. God wants to forgive us. And by the way, God will not reject us when you come to Him. So, 
All of us, the Jews in Ezra's day, needed a fresh start, and so do we. And that's why as believers, we must continually be confessing our sins to God, because that's the only way to enjoy complete fellowship and joy with Christ. Luke 22, look at verse 31 through 34. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. But I pray for thee, that thy faith fail not, and when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. And he said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. And he, Jesus said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Did Peter know failure? Yeah, he denied Christ. But Jesus said, Peter, I want you to know something. I prayed for you. Because I know that Satan wants to destroy you. But you have to understand this. He says, Peter, when you are converted, strengthen the brethren. How many know Christ forgave me in advance? He did. So Jesus prays for Peter. He says, Peter, I want you to bounce back. You know why? Because God wants to forgive you. And he did. Church history, the Bible tells us, Peter did come back. And he led the early church. Micah, chapter 7, verse 18. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity, passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever, because why? He delights in mercy. Let's stand together. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I know a God like that. Doesn't stay angry forever. He'd rather show us mercy. He'd rather allow us to have that fresh start. And that's what the Jews in Ezra Day did. They built that altar, that new dedication. They began with a fresh start with God. Amen. Folks, thank you so much for being here tonight. Thank you for coming back, by the way. I do hope you have a great week and uh, keep God first.